What's up, family? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. On this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to Dr. Sarah Hill. Sarah is the author of This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, The Surprising Science of Women, Hormones, and the Law of Unintended Consequences. She's a leading researcher in the dynamic and rapidly expanding field of evolutionary psychology and has more than 50 scientific publications and multiple prestigious research grants under her belt. She's become an authority on the application of evolutionary ideas to human behavior and psychology. So in continuing with the theme from last week's episode of The Genius Life, this episode is going to do a deep dive into all things things women's health but whether you're a male or a female or gender non-binary you're gonna get a ton out of this episode i promise you over the next hour and 15 minutes you're gonna discover the pros and cons of hormonal birth control and other methods such as the rhythm method and copper iud how the pill can affect behavior attraction and sex through its influence on the hormone estrogen the potential dangers of early life exposure to hormone disrupting chemicals and so much more. Honestly, you guys, this is one of my favorite episodes to date, and Sarah was just a pleasure to interview. So I highly recommend uh, listening through the, to the end of this episode, as well as picking up her book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control. But before we get to it, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is Four Sigmatic. As some of you guys may know if you follow me on Instagram, for the past three weeks, I have gone completely without caffeine. No coffee except for the occasional decaf, which I know you guys has a tiny, tiny trace amount of caffeine. But generally speaking, I went from going from three to four cups of coffee a day to zero. And I got to tell you, after that first three day hurdle, I feel amazing. More energy than ever. And uh, I think more importantly, that energy is stable throughout the day. And one of the drinks that I've really leaned on is a soothing um, sort of pick me up in the morning is Four Sigmatic's Lion's Mane Elixir, which has zero caffeine and zero sugar. Some of you guys may know that typically I would uh, enjoy their Lion's Mane infused coffee, but as I said, I'm going caffeine free. So their Lion's Mane has really been um, great, and I'll do it uh, every day or every other day. Um, it's super tasty, and you know, it kind of is able to displace that ritual of having a hot beverage in the morning. So if you'd like to give their Lion's Mane Elixir a try in the morning. All you got to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save 15% off of everything in their online store, um, including their Lion's Mane Infused Coffee or their Lion's Mane Solo Elixir. All are great options. And if you decide to give the caffeine-free um, challenge a shot, well, hit me up on Instagram and let me know. I'm curious to know your thoughts. I got to tell you, I feel great. And although I may reintegrate caffeine um, and coffee at some point, right now I'm feeling perfect without it. So uh, we'll see how long it goes for and I will keep you abreast. Now we're just seconds away from my chat with the brilliant Sarah Hill talking all things birth control and hormones. Uh, but before we get to it, guys, please take a moment to support The Genius Life. You can do that um, in two ways. You can leave a rating and review for the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. That really helps draw new listeners, um, which helps me to continue to bring you high quality interviews week after week. And uh, of course, I'd really appreciate it. And the second way that you can support The Genius Life is by going to maxlugavere.com, which is my website, and by leaving your name and email address and joining my newsletter. My newsletter allows me to get my latest projects out to you, along with science that I think has the potential to change your life, uh, exclusive discounts, book recommendations, and the like. So I would really appreciate being able to connect with you there. All you got to do is go to maxlugavere.com, sign up. You can opt out anytime, and I promise not to spam ever. Why would I do that? 
All right, guys. Well, that's enough from me. I'm excited to dive into uh, this topic again, women's health, hormones, sex, birth control. This is going to be a good one. So strap on your seatbelt and let's go. Dr. Hill, thank you so much for being with me on The Genius Life. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to uh, to talk about your book. This is your brain on birth control. I just want to say I, I uh, began reading it, and right away it was very clear how well-written the book is and how humorous it is. It's really funny. So <laughs> oh, good. congrats. I mean, it's like a, it's like a scientific text um, in a way. You know, you, it's obviously about hormones and, you know, the ins and outs of birth control, but it was a joy to read. Oh, great. Thanks so much. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I originally thought I'll either go into like stand up comedy, <laughs> right, like humor, writing or science. And, um, and so this kind of allowed me to um, combine all of those interests into one place. That's amazing. Well, before we get into <laughs> it, yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about your background? You are an evolutionary psychologist, which is amazing. Like, that's one of my favorite fields. Um, yeah. So yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, so um, I uh, I've been in the field now for uh, gosh um, almost 19 years, and I did my PhD down at uh, UT Austin, um, working with uh, David Buss, who's one of our sort of founding fathers of the area of evolutionary psychology. Um, and a lot of folks, I, I know that a lot of your listeners probably like know what that is, but for those who don't, it's just really using you know the tools that are available from the evolutionary sciences um, and the theory of evolution by selection which is this like really nice theoretical framework that can be used to understand and make predictions about behaviors, you know, ranging from like species like honeybees um, to bacterial colonies um, to human beings. And so it's this really nice, powerful theoretical framework that we can use to um, really understand um, human behavior and all of the sort of physiological and sort of cognitive processes that create behavior. Um, and so I, my background was actually um, originally in uh, anthropology because I'm really interested in the sort of the evolutionary approaches to understanding people. And then um, off to grad school, I went to study psychology and um, I've spent most of my career uh, studying uh, sort of the processes um, related to uh, relationships. So I study a lot of things related to um, sexual behavior and uh, attraction um, and also related to health. And so I use the principles from um, Darwin's theory of evolution by selection as a means of understanding some of the things that, you know, about human behavior that really require answers. Like why do people for example, engage in risky sexual behavior, even when they know the risks or, you know, why um, do people eat when they're not hungry um, when they know that it is going to lead to an unhealthy energy balance? And um, and so that's what I've spent most of my um, career studying are um, re behaviors related to health and behaviors related to um, interpersonal relationships and sex. And, um, and it was really sort of through personal experience um, that I became interested in the birth control pill and how modifying a woman's level of sex hormones um, sort of changes, you know, it, it sort of throws a monkey wrench um, in these other, you know, occurring processes um, that, that influence women's um, behavior that have been shaped by selection. So basically, it's like, how does this change um, the face of human nature? And this um, was something that I really got interested in um, after I 
discontinued the birth control pill, which I was on for uh, more than a decade of my life. Um, and I started to feel really different. <laughs> I started to feel kind of like I um, woke up from a nap that I didn't know that I was taking. Um, and that was what really got me interested in trying to understand like, what exactly is does the pill do? How is it modifying all these processes um, that have been shaped by the process of um, evolution by selection? Um, and, and how does that change women? And how does it change the world? That's amazing. I think it's important <laughs> to underscore like, that we kind of go about our lives as if we have full agency over our thoughts and our feelings and our actions. But really, we're just like these um, marionette puppets guided <laughs> in, in many ways by these unseen, invisible chemicals that are flowing through us in sometimes huge amounts and sometimes micro amounts. And those are essentially hormones and, of course, neurotransmitters, right? Right, right. I mean, when it comes to the the sort of experience of being who we are, like the experience of you being you and me being me, I mean, it's it's a product of, you know, chemical and electrical signaling going on in our body and really like the two key types of messengers that create the experience of being the human we are our, you know, neurotransmitters and our hormones. And, um, and, you know, it's, it's funny, because it's like, I think we kind of all sort of get into this magical, sort of Cartesian thinking, I mean, even neuroscientists, you know, even people like who study the brain for a living. It's like, because the experience of being a human, um, and like having, you know, restaurant preferences, and like, like, you know, downloading music and, and doing all these things we do as people, um, doesn't feel like the product of chemical and electrical signals, right? That's actually what's creating all of those experiences. And so, um, you know, when we change some of those signals, um, it's going to change who we are, it's going to change the version of ourselves that the brain creates. Um, and, you know, in, in, in this blind spot that we have, right, this sort of disconnect, this magical Cartesian split, I mean, it's something that even I, you know, was that, that, you know, somebody who studies biological processes that influence, you know, behavior, um, and somebody who has published papers, I've published papers on the effects of women's sex hormones on things like attraction and, and behavior. And I still was taking the pill without, <laughs> without, <laughs> without thinking about the fact that it, you know, was going to be influencing all of these processes. It's like this, this disconnect is so fundamental, I think, to the experience of being human that, um, that we sort of, you know, are willing to do these things like change our profile of sex hormones without really thinking about what that really means. And so part of the book is just really about um, sort of reminding everybody like was something that we all probably sort of know at some level, but it's like, oh, yeah, like that's part of the signaling machinery that makes me me. And so if I change that, it's probably going to have influence, you know, outside of the area of my ovaries, for example. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. <laughs> so you open the book by saying that, that you know, you're not necessarily taking a like a flat out anti birth control stance because you actually credit in many ways your career to having been on birth control. <laughs> Is that correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this really writing this book is just about giving women information and sort of having us all take seriously the idea of going on the pill, because I think that we've been really cavalier about it. And, you know, not just with, you know, with preg with um, fertility regulation and avoiding pregnancy, because I think in that context, I mean, the benefits that women get from being able to regulate their fertility are absolutely enormous. And like I write in the book, um, like, 
my ability and, and my motivation to go into, you know, a, you know, 10 years of post high school education. Um, I don't know if I would have wanted to get myself into that if I didn't know for certain that I wasn't going to get pregnant during that time, right, and have my all of my hard work sort of laid to dust, because all of a sudden, I was thrust into parenthood that I wasn't ready for. And so um, having the ability to regulate our fertility and sort of separate, you know, sex from the consequences of sex, that's what that is what has allowed men to outperform women for so much of history, because women always had that storm cloud, you know, brewing this possibility that, you know, pregnancy was going to happen or actually having pregnancy happen that sort of prevented them from reaching, you know, economic independence. And now that we have that capacity because of, you know, the birth control pill, um, in part, um, you know, it's really, it's taken us to amazing places as, as women. It's like, we're, you know, we're doing amazingly well when you look at the numbers of us in higher ed and the numbers of us, um, you know, finishing college or even going to college, um, you know, women are doing very well. We're do- um, and in part, I credit this, yeah, in big, large part to, um, the pill. So this isn't about being anti birth control pill. Cause I'm, I'm absolutely not. And in some context, you know, in like, in even in my own personal context, context, um, it made a great deal of sense. It's really about knowing what the trade-offs are when, um, when you go on the pill. Um, so that way, you know, if you're making that choice, you, you know what trade-offs you're making. Um, but also that we take it seriously in the context of considering taking the pill for other reasons. So, you know, sometimes people go on the birth control pill to clear up their skin or to sort of decrease menstrual cramping. And, you know, and it still might make sense for women to be making these trade-offs if that if that's what they choose, right? But I think that we've been kind of cavalier about the pill because we've, again, had this disconnect where it's like, well, you know, we take this pill and it clears up our skin and isn't that fabulous and amazing. Um, but without thinking like I'm taking this pill to clear my skin, um, you know, but it's also going to change who I am. (laughs) It's like, it's a little bit more of a serious, you know, question. I think that, um, you know, it's just really about giving people information. So that way, whatever choice it is that they want to make. And I, and I think that, each individual woman is the person who's best equipped to make that decision, but they just know what, you know, what the trade-offs are. It's just about having information, not about, you know, telling people what to do. Cause I have no, no business. You know, I feel like I barely have business telling myself, <laughs> myself what to do some days. Um, but it's really just about giving people all of the information that they need to make informed choices. I totally agree. I think in the modern world, there are so many arenas in which we're lacking truly informed consent when it comes mm-hmm. to our food choices, when it it comes to medications, when it comes to chemicals to which we are routinely exposed just in our environments. So mm-hmm. let's so let's talk about like what, you know, a female is signing up for when opting for the pill in terms of the potential consequences. Yeah, well, so one, you know, just to sort of set the stage for that, um, you know, one thing I think that um, people don't really recognize, and it's because we aren't taught any of this information, which is a different soapbox I could go on. But like, you know, right now, you know, the way that our sort of education about health and about our bodies works, um, you know, you have to get a PhD in order to learn how your sex hormones, for example, influence your body. Like I didn't understand, I didn't know anything about, you know, um, cyclically changing hormones and, and, you know, fertility and how that influences anything until I was on my way to get a PhD. And I think that's absurd um, that, you know, they have to get a PhD to learn how your, how your body works. Um, I couldn't agree more. Like, 
Yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's not fair. You know, it's like everybody should have that information. We should all be taught as part of like sort of core curriculum, how our bodies work and like what types of environments and foods and other things are optimized for. So that way we can take better care of ourselves. But so like to, you know, as part of this, as part of my soapbox that I'm going to attempt not to climb onto, <laughs> um, I'll just say that I think people don't have um, uh, an appreciation of just how many fingers um, our female sex hormones have, you know, like the other fingers in the pots of so many different systems in the body. Um, and, uh, and the reason for this is that pregnancy for women um, requires a workaround by almost every major system in her body, right? So it requires a workaround by the circulatory system. It requires a workaround by the immune system. It requires a workaround by the digestive system. It requires a bunch of different workarounds in the brain. Um, and just this idea that our almost every system in the body, like I can't think of a single system in the body um, that women's bodies that isn't sensitive to her levels of sex hormones. And again, the reason for this is that there's so many workarounds that are required in order to grow a human being in your body hmm. um, and be able to like nourish it and like not have your immune system totally destroy it. And, you know, all of these different things. And so, um, you know, our bodies are very um, sensitive to levels of sex hormones. And it's been designed that way by evolution, by selection, because it had to, it was the only way pregnancy would be possible. And so when you make a change um, to women's sex hormones, um, it's going to have absolutely pervasive effects um, head to toe, you know, in the body. Um, and, you know, when, uh, when you take the pill, you know, it does its magic um, by sort of making the brain believe that a woman is in the second half of her a regular menstrual cycle. So generally, um, you know, sort of like ovulation 101 um, is, you know, at the first part of a woman's menstrual cycle, her body, um, you know, her brain is sending this hormonal cascade, um, this information to her ovaries, telling her ovaries like, hey, hey, let's get an egg released. And so um, the different egg follicles are like doing their thing. And, and when the egg follicles begin to develop, they release high levels of estrogen. Um, and this um, estrogen sort of builds and builds and builds until at which point um, an egg gets released, right? This is that magical thing we all heard about in health class um, when we were in middle school. So this egg gets released um, into the body. And once the egg is released, that structure that's left over after the egg was released from this follicle starts releasing another sex hormone, which is the sex hormone progesterone. And when progesterone is high um, and estrogen relatively low, that sends a signal to the brain that the body has an egg that has been released um, and that the body is sort of in wait and see mode, like waiting to see whether or not that egg that was just released is going to get fertilized and in implanted. And because the body is in wait and see mode, that tells the brain to stop telling the egg follicles to do anything, right? So the brain kind of quiets itself um, and just kind of hangs out for a little while um, and, you know, waiting to see whether or not that egg implants. And so the way that the pill works is um, you take this d dose of hormones every day that has a relatively high level of synthetic uh, progesterone relative to synthetic 
uh, estrogen. And these artificial, um, these synthetic uh, progesterones, they're called progestins, right? So every day you're getting this hormonal message that says relatively high levels of progestins, relatively low levels of estrogen. And that tells the brain, I don't need to do anything to tell the ovaries, you know, to start maturing an egg. And that's why you don't ovulate when you're on the pill. And it's, you know, it's kind of brilliant, actually, when you think about the fact that your body is actually, you know, sort of prevent, you know, preventing pregnancy itself, um, by not sort of initiating this cascade. And so that's what happens, you know, when we're on the pill is we take this daily dose of hormones, um, and it just keeps our brain quiet and prevents it from doing all the stuff. Now that that now that hormonal message right, that's preventing our brain from initiating ovulation, or initiating egg development, um, that, you know, also is influencing every other cell in our body that has receptors for those hormones. Um, And again, like I had said earlier, you know, um, almost all the cells in our body are going to be sensitive to the levels of sex hormones that are going on in our body, just because so many different systems require workarounds for pregnancy. Um, And so when you have this hormonal message going into your body, it travels throughout your bloodstream um, and it influences every cell in your body that has receptors for those hormones. And there's a ton of them in the brain. Um, And so, yeah. And so what it does is, um, you know, it sends this hormonal message to the brain. And um, and then, of course, you know, it causes changes to everything ranging from our, you know, um, desire for sex to potentially the uh, types of partners that we're attracted to, to the nature of our stress response, to our ability to regulate mood. Um, and that's probably, you know, just like the tip of the iceberg um, in terms of the different types of um, different types of effects that it has on the body. That is amazing. That is amazing. I'm first of all, I'm learning so much about <laughs> women's health and menstruation from you, but also one of the one of the most recent previous episodes, um, episode 75 of my show, we talked all about uh, the menstrual cycle and how to support mm-hmm. your menstruation um, and all the you know the other uh, I guess three cycle the three phases with um, uh-huh. with food and uh, so it's fascinating. How does so? But the pill. Women also will get their period on a monthly basis on the pill, right? Doesn't it help regulate the, like, is there a release point at which during the month um, there's there's a uh, a reduction, I guess, in progesterone or progestin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, yeah, so what normally happens in um, a regular cycle is, you know, part of the hormones that are going on. Um, you know, the, the estrogen and then, you know, the progesterone, part of what these things are doing is leading to the um, buildup of the endometrial lining, which is this lining inside the uterus um, that, you know, where the embryo implants itself. And, um, you know, so the period is something that um, is the shedding of this lining. And this is something that gets precipitated by um, hormonal crashes, right? So during the second half of a woman's menstrual cycle, so during that um, part when progesterone is relatively high and estrogen is is relatively low, um, that is, again, like the point where the body is just kind of like the uterine lining is continuing to proliferate in case something implants itself um, and the woman's body is preparing for pregnancy. Um, And if an embryo implants, those levels of hormones stay really high. Hmm. But if an embryo does not implant, um, the hormone levels actually begin to, they just like crash. 
And so whenever you have um, a spontaneous crashing of your sex hormones, um, this will initiate um, a bleed. Um, and generally with, an, with a period, this is the shedding of the endometrial lining that built up during that um, period where the body was, you know, having this egg developing and then hoping that maybe it was going to implant and waiting and seeing. And, um, and, and if nothing happens, then it's like, all right, you know, let's, start over again, boys, let's, let's, you know, we're getting rid of this one. Hmm. Um, and we're going to like, try it, try again. And so, um, you know, an actual period is the shedding of this lining. Um, with the birth control pill, you get sort of a, a pseudo period, um, because it's not really, um, there's really not much of an endometrium that gets built up. Um, in uh, pill-taking women because their levels of estrogen are kept really low across the cycle. Um, and that's sort of the primary driver of um, the, the buildup of the endometrial lining. And so having this um, hormonal message, the sa same daily hormonal message every day of high progestin, relatively low estrogen, prevents that from happening, which is actually why a lot of women will go on the pill um, to relieve cramping or symptoms of endometriosis, because it prevents like over proliferation of these cells in the uterus, um, which makes periods, you know, lighter and, um, and less painful. And um, so with the pill, you know, what, what women do is every day you're taking the same hormonal message and then you get, you know, seven days of these where you take these placebo pills, which is a sugar pill. Um, and this initiates a bleed because anytime you have a hormonal crash, um, that will initiate, um, this sort of bleeding that goes on. But, you know, technically, um, you know, this isn't really a quote unquote period cause there's really not a shedding of anything cause there's really nothing that's building up during that time. And so sometimes people get sort of, you know, fussy about, well, you don't actually have a period. You can't really regulate, you know, you're not regulating your period on the pill um, because you're not shedding anything and it's not really a period. And, you know, for uh, shorthand, it's a period, right? <laughs> like there's no endo endometrial lining or whatever. Um, but it is like causing this little um, sort of uh, hormone withdrawal bleed, um, which, you know, sort of mirrors the thing that goes on during a natural cycle. Yeah, I guess like from, uh, from the standpoint of the person it's all the same it's all the same right yeah. exactly like to people like who you know study health and um you know and uteri <laughs> you know <laughs> they can get kind of um they can get kind of bogged down and like that is not a period um and so like yeah i recognize it's not a period um but it's you know it's it's sort of similar to one and um you know and it makes women sort of reminds them that they're not pregnant that was actually why they originally built it into the the pill was um, just because women were feeling really uncomfortable about the fact um, that they weren't having any reassurances that they weren't actually pregnant. And um, so that, that little withdrawal bleed that goes on isn't something that's actually, you know, necessarily necessary every month, which is why they've gotten these um, pills now that you use like three months worth in a row without having a withdrawal bleed, ah. um, if you're comfortable with that. Interesting. So it's just there really to serve as uh, like a reminder, essentially, but nothing, nothing more you're saying. Yeah, really. No, it doesn't really serve that much of a that much of a function. I mean, I think that at some point, because you are still going still going to be getting some cells that are sort of proliferating in the uterus that, um, you know, and whenever you have a quickly replicating cell that increases the risk of a neoplasm or a, something that could potentially, you know, develop into cancer, just because that's what cancer likes to do is it it's m copying mistakes when you have rapidly proliferating cells. Um, and so I mean, uh, you know, 
at some point, I think it probably makes sense because you are still having some proliferation, even though it's not what you get across a natural cycle. Like, I think it's a good idea to, to have that bleed. Um, but you know, that's something that's, um, is, is sort of a hot debate in the, in the, uh, literature on that sort of thing. I'm a psychologist, so I like to I like to focus what I'm doing kind of on the on the neck up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, okay. So speaking of which, now that we have a good working sort of knowledge of how the pill works and what it does from the from the standpoint of one's hormones, let's talk about what it does to the brain. So in your book, you reveal all these incredible um, findings about how birth control can affect everything from one's choice of partner to one's risk for divorce to how uh, actually attractive a person is. So let's talk about some of those incredible findings. Yeah. So, you know, we can start by talking about the partner choice um, research, because this is something that's really provocative. And, um, and, you know, it's something that I found really interesting. And it it was something that really stuck with me as I was beginning to sort of look at the different ways that uh, the pill influences psychology. Um, And just to give you a little bit of backstory that you know, this research sort of is an offshoot of some research that's been going on now for 20 or maybe almost 30 years now. I'm looking at the role that women's uh, sex hormones sort of naturally occurring um, across a regular menstrual cycle um, impact uh, women's attunement to certain types of cues in men and like who they're attracted to and their desire for sex and that sort of thing. Um, And what this research has found Um, is that um, the sex hormone estrogen, um, which again um, is sort of the dominant uh, female sex hormone during the first half of the menstrual cycle. So, you know, days sort of um, zero to day 12 to 13 is when estrogen is sort of the dominant hormone. This is when the body is, um, you know, nearing uh, peak fertility. And so the body is basically throwing out all of the stops, right, in terms of, um, seeming maximally, you know, making the body and, and, and women sort of maximally desirable to partners. So we know that estrogen, for example, is related to um, a woman's body scent, um, how attractive they're sort of perceived by men, um, and also like how sexy they feel, like it gives them a little sort of spring in their step. Hmm. Um, and it also influences the the types of um, traits that they really place an emphasis on in their choice of partners. Um, so we know, for example, um, that when estrogen is dominant and when fertility is high, um, that women tend to prioritize um, cues um, that are linked with uh, the presence of the male sex hormone, testosterone. Um, so, for example, um, research finds that when um, that a woman's own levels of estrogen across the cycle actually track almost perfectly the degree to which they prefer testosterone markers in the faces of men. Um, and so it's like, you know, it's like estrogen is this like sort of like it, it likes men it likes it likes sex <laughs> it likes masculinity you know it likes these um you know it sort of really prioritizes these types of cues and it's reasoned that you know that estrogen sort of is linked to a preference for these types of cues because these cues are believed to be um indicative of of you know high genetic quality and having a low mutation load i'm just right? curious um, what uh what are some telltale signs of high testosterone in a male's face i'm just curious whether or not i would stack up Right, that, I would say you're ideal. asking for a friend. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, asking, 
I'm asking for a friend. Um, it's um, having like a, you know, sort of deep set eyes and the brow ridge, having a relatively um, square jaw, having broad shoulders and a narrow waist, having a deep voice. Hmm. Um, social dominance is a personality trait that's linked with relatively high levels of testosterone. So these are each, you know, um, musculature is also um, generally linked with uh, testosterone levels. And so each, you know, each one of these cues are things that um, women generally exhibit a preference for particularly um, at high fertility and when estrogen is the dominant hormone. Um, and so, you know, research has kind of found this to be um, to be true. There's been some sort of debate in the literature about how strong the effects are and that sort of thing. But for the most part, the research sort of converges on the fact that women really prioritize these, um, what I'll just call sexiness cues um, at times in the cycle when estrogen is relatively high and fertility is 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 high. And again, the idea being that this will help women um, identify partners who uh, have a low mutation load and have high genetic quality to help secure um, the sort of quote unquote best genes for their offspring. And uh, so, you know, researchers um, who, you know, were sort of thinking about the birth control pill then became interested in like, how does this influence mate preferences then, right? If it's, if it's true that um, women's sex hormones have a hand in the types of partners that women are choosing, um, you know, if we change women's hormonal profiles, and in particular, we change their profiles such that estrogen is kept very low across the cycle. And, you know, progestins, these artificial progestins um, are, are dominant across the cycle. You know, we can make a couple of predictions about things here, right? We can predict one, that women are going to have less sexual desire overall, because that's not a hormonal profile that predicts sexual interest or, you know, sort of even attunement to men at all. Um, we can also predict that it's going to sort of diminish the priority that women place on sexiness um, when they're choosing their partners because they, you know, pill-taking women, given their hormonal profile, they shouldn't be as attuned to these sexiness cues as their naturally cycling counterparts. And so researchers have gone out um, and, and sort of looked at these issues and in sort of the first, um, you know, the first set of results I'll kind of talk about is just like with sex drive. And this is something that, you know, most women who are listening right now are like, yeah, no, we know the story. <laughs> we know the story of a sex drive. Um, you know, uh, the birth control pill, um, you know, which of course most women take because they are planning on having sex or they're like hoping to have sex <laughs> um, is actually, you know, like can be really sort of a potent form of sexual anti-venom um, in that it creates this hormonal profile that um, does not fuel women's sexual desire. Hmm. And indeed, there's a lot of research showing that that's the case and that um, pill-taking women report thinking about sex less frequently. They um, have sex um, when they're in a, a, like a single relationship. Within that relationship, they have less sex um, and they tend to have more problems with sexual functioning. So their sexual response that they normally have, both physiological um, and even in some cases, says, um, you know, their ability to climax can be impacted by the birth control pill in a way that's not necessarily um, conducive to, um, you know, to, to women's sex lives. Um, and so that's like one, you know, that was sort of the first foray into the way that, you know, the pill can kind of influence, um, you know, sex related things. Um, and then, you know, again, we can also make some predictions about attraction. 
And given that um, estrogen sort of fuels a preference for things related to testosterone, we can make predictions and, and, and that it sort of increases the priority that women place on sexiness and their partners. Um, we can, you know, predict that uh, pill-taking women will, um, you know, sort of de-emphasize sexiness in their choice of partners, right, and might actually exhibit a preference for less masculine men than what is um, what is exhibited by naturally cycling women. And even though the jury is still out on these research questions, because there's um, a lot of research that still needs to be done, there is some evidence suggesting that this is exactly what happens. Um, so just to give you an example of one particularly well executed study, um, because what I loved about the study is that it was actually done within subjects. So they had the same women, both when they were naturally cycling, and then three months after they started the birth control pill, and they were able to see like their preference for masculinity, both in terms of short term partners, so just somebody they're going to be having sex with, I mean, also like a long term sort of, you know, dating or even marriage partner. And um, what these researchers did is they had women coming into the lab, you know, before going on the pill and then again, like three months later after they had started. And they had them use this computer program where they could actually manipulate how masculine the male, a male face was, right? So if they, if they slid the little um, slider bar that they had under the photograph one way, it would make the face more sort of feminine. And if they slid the little bar the other way, it would make it more masculine. And what they found was that when they had women designing their ideal sort of short-term sexual partner and their ideal long-term romantic partner, they found that when women um, went on the birth control pill, they were actually designing an ideal face that was less masculine um, than what they were designing um, when before they were um, before they started the pill. Um, they've also found when looking at the faces of the partners chosen by women on the birth control pill versus women who are not on the birth control pill. So in this latter study that I'm telling you about, they made comparisons between groups of women, right? So they had a group of women who reported, you know, everybody in the study had to have had a romantic partner, right? They had to, they indicated that they had a partner. Um, and then they um, compared the faces of partners that were chosen by the women in their sample who chose their partner when they were on the birth control pill. Hmm. And they compared those faces with um, the the partners that were chosen by women who are not on the birth control pill. And using both a computer program that's able to pick up on um, these cues that are associated with um, testosterone presence um, and also just subjective rating. So having other people look at the photographs and, and sort of reporting their perceived masculinity in those faces. Um, using those different metrics, they found that um, the, the faces, the men, who were chosen by women on the pill, um, they actually had more feminine faces than um, the partners that were chosen by women who were naturally cycling. Um, and so what this suggests is that, you know, we might sort of pick up on and sort of, you know, prioritize different types of traits um, in our partners um, when we are on the birth control pill compared to um, when we are off the birth control pill. Um, and that this can actually, you know, have an impact on things like um, relationship satisfaction, right? And, and, and even, you know, in, in sexual satisfaction, and, you know, may also um, sort of carry over to predict relationship problems if women choose their partner, for example, when they're on the pill and then choose to go off of it. Um, and this latter sort of question 
right? Like how does, um, you know, how does a woman's relationship change and how does her own feeling about her partner and her level of sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction change? Um, if she chose her partner when she was on the pill and then goes off of it, um, is something that's like a really provocative question, right? Because it, um, really sort of shows us just how, you know, sort of important, um, these issues might be in terms of predicting like, like things that really matter to women, like the quality of their relationships and the quality of their marriages and the longevity of their marriage. Um, and there's been, you know, there's one particularly well done study examining this issue, um, was one that was done in, uh, it was a longitudinal study, which means that you follow people over time. Um, and it was a longitudinal study done in married couples. And what they did is they were able to follow these married couples over time um, and look at what is it that happens um, to women's sexual and relationship satisfaction um, if they choose their partners when they're on the pill and then go off of it. Like um, if one set of hormones is choosing the partner, right, and then a different set of hormones is like, stuck with a guy he's like married to the guy hmm. um how does that influence how they feel about their partner and um and what they found was really really fascinating and it was that um you know if women who chose their marriage partners when they were on the birth control pill um if they later went off of the birth control pill it did cause changes in how satisfied they were sort of sexually and how attracted they were to their partner um, and even their relationship satisfaction. But whether those changes were positive or negative depended on how attractive their partner was. <laughs> so what they found was that women who were partnered with attractive men, right? So women who weren't really prioritizing how hot their partner was when they chose him but ended up with an attractive guy anyway. Like once they went off the birth control pill, they reported more sexual, like an increase in sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction prior to what it was, you know, before going off the pill. It's, but then for women, yeah, go ahead. No, it's just, it's just so interesting. I just, I, so I wonder, I've got so many questions, but yeah. when, when they do these studies, like, Obviously, a woman's level of estrogen throughout her cycle is not static, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, were they all yes. um, controlled right. for the, you know, for where they were in their cycles? And the other, the other question that I have, and I, I wonder if you've looked into this, like, yes, um, a, ma a man with more testosterone, with features that are more indicative of, I guess, higher levels of testosterone, um, mm -hmm. may be more attractive, but are they also not more risky? Right, right. Okay, so let's answer these like one at like one at a time, right? So the first one is about a woman's own levels of hormones. And this is such a fascinating thing, right? Because you're right, women's levels of sex hormones are not static. And, um, and they do change across the cycle. And in these, um, in these studies where, for example, they've looked at um, women's levels of um, relationship satisfaction, or even in the study that I was telling you about, where they looked at women within subjects, looking at, um, you know, the face preferences that they had before and after they went on the birth control pill, um, they did not account for cycle phase. Now, the prediction would be that for the naturally cycling women that we would really see like, for example, in the married couple study where they studied these women over time, um, that for 
the women who are partnered to these attractive men um, that the changes in, you know, the sort of increase that they get in terms of sexual and relationship satisfaction that they get after they go off the pill um, should be particularly high um, at phases in the cycle when estrogen is the dominant hormone um, and should be relatively muted um, at you know, phases of the cycle when, um, when progesterone is dominant. And the way that they've asked these questions in, in that particular study, it was sort of these global evaluations. Um, and, you know, in some ways one would expect that global evaluations are also going to be influenced by your sort of momentary sex hormone profile. Um, but just the idea that even that you go through these sort of ebb and flow, these changing hormones, that the sort of positive feelings that you get from being with this attractive partner when estrogen is dominant, like for some women is probably, you know, is carrying over in terms of their sort of overall global feelings about the relationship, which is also, you know, like really, I think really interesting and sort of, you know, so as we move forward with this research, and there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of um, really sort of under, you know, demonstrating how reliable the effect is and getting at what some of the mechanisms are. Um, that's something that really, I think it's, it's important to look at next as well. Okay. How does this then change across the cycle mm-hmm. um, to get to this other issue that you talked about, which is really fascinating. Right. And that is like testosterone, even though like most guys think that like testosterone should just be <laughs> really high all the time. Cause like more testosterone equals good. Um, testosterone is a mixed bag, um, you know, and it is related to not only risk taking, which you mentioned, and it is right. Guys with higher levels of testosterone, um, tend to take more risks. Um, it's like related to mating effort generally. Right. And, and I would actually, you know, I would put risk taking right under that category of like what we'll call mating effort. Right. It's, it's, men are motivated, men with relatively high levels of testosterone are motivated um, to do things to impress and attract women. Um, and that's why, you know, men with levels of relatively high levels of T, um, they tend to be, you know, like CEOs. And they also tend to be people who ride motorcycles with a blindfold on, you know, <laughs> like off of a cliff or whatever, as a means of like trying to, you know, these are these are courtship displays. Um, and and so like, when you're partnered with this type of a person, you know, yeah, he might be really sexy. Um, but he's also somebody who's, yeah, more likely to die climbing off Mount Everest, um, you know, whatever, but also somebody who is also more likely to probably um, not be completely faithful um, because there's a lot of evidence also linking. And this is not, um, and let me just like hasten to say that this isn't the case for every male and um, like, high T guys shouldn't come with like a warning label saying that, you know, that they're going to be likely to be unfaithful, but it is a, it is a mating effort hormone and um, men with higher levels of T consistent with, you know, what you would expect with mating effort is they tend to report um, having um, a greater number of extra pair relationships than do men with lower levels of T. So they, um, they're, they're a, they're a greater risk of, um, of sort of, you know, infidelity and some of these um, other things that go along with being partnered with a high T guy. Um, And so this is sort of, you know, again, um, when you look at the the differences in relationship satisfaction um, and 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 the different types of ways that the birth control pill can influence relationship dynamics, um, one thing that the research shows is that women who are partnered to, um, or pardon me, women who choose their partners when they are on the birth control pill, 
um, they're actually less likely to have gotten divorced subsequently um, than women who chose their partners when they were naturally cycling. Um, and there's like no sort of, you know, pathway. Um, the researchers haven't yet established, you know, what is the pathway by which these relationships exist, right? This relationship between choosing your partner when you were on the pill and then a lower likelihood of divorce on the other hand. Um, but my inclination, my guess is, um, and, you know, and the researchers who, who did this research, um, they shared the same sort of intuition about what might be going on with this um, as I do. And that is, you know, if you're somebody who's not prioritizing these cues, right, these these testosterone cues, it might lead you to choose somebody um, who's going to be sort of a more reliable and faithful long-term partner. Um, and so, you know, choosing your romantic partner um, when you are on the birth control pill um, you know, seems to be associated, at least in um, the research that's studied it so far, um, with a lower risk of divorce, right? A higher risk of um, like sort of sexual dissatisfaction, but a lower risk of divorce. And so really, this is just about knowing that knowing what the trade-offs are, <laughs> you know, because everything, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? <laughs> right. And so it's like and everything kind of cuts both ways. And, and the same is true with the birth control pill, right? And it's like, pick your poison. <laughs> yeah, so women that are women that are not on the pill are more likely to pick a guy who's who's got who displays higher levels of testosterone it seems and thereby mm -hmm. display these traits that are, you know, more muscular but also perhaps more um, you know, inclined to take risks and to seek out, you know, multiple partners and so mm -hmm. yeah, there's that there's that risk but they're going to end up with I guess the, you know, the the more attractive guy. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So it's really it's it's about trade offs. I mean, these are trade offs. If you talk to any women like these are trade offs we've been making for, you know, all of history. Um, <laughs> women have had to, you know, sort of make the trade off between, you know, the, the good dad and the sexy cad. And um, and this is just sort of another piece of the puzzle. You know, there, there's hormones and that are involved that can sort of tilt your decision making one way or the other. And um, I actually think that women can use this information um, strategically, you know, if they want to, if they sort of know what it is that they want in their life and, you know, could actually sort of maximize um, their likelihood of a, of a successful outcome by sort of being aware of the processes involved and sort of um, strategizing their birth control pill use, depending on what type of relationship they're looking for. I'm just curious if in your book, you offer any sympathy for us men who, <laughs> who are in relationships with women who at any given point in, in the month, they're desiring different things if they're not on the pill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, yeah. No, I, uh, I, my next book is going to be called My Condolences, <laughs> <laughs> a story of women's sex hormones and their male partners. Um, no, so I, you know, I, I talk about it's, you know, when you have cyclically changing hormones, um, you know, it can, you know, it's sort of like sort of nudges what women are prioritizing maybe at one point, um, or another point. Um, but we know that it's not like these huge vacillations, you know, w women's sex hormones can, we, we have kind of been caricaturized, you know, as like having these like big, huge sweeping changes and, um, in terms of like, well, you know, um, and, you know, like where you're going to be completely inconsistent and unreliable. And, and it does matter. I mean, make no mistake about it. This book wouldn't be something that I felt like was worth writing if I didn't think that nudging our hormones this way and that way, um, have implications for like actual, like real life outcomes and people's experiences in the world. Um, but, I, but I do think that if we sort of know what we're 
dealing with and the ways that our hormones can kind of nudge our behaviors or nudge our partner's behaviors um, in one way or the other, um, that it can actually sort of allow us like deeper understanding and we can sort of just sort of nod and know what's going on and say, yep, I know what's, I know what's going on with that. Um, you know, this is, this is what happens right now at this point, you know, in my cycle or my partner's, you know, cycle. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, I I think that, you know, women, we have a, we have, uh, we have enough like to deal like in terms of, um, you know, changing sex hormones, influencing, um, you know, uh, what our partner does, like women have to deal with that too, because, you know, men's testosterone levels change all the time, right? Time of day, right? If there's a gun around, like when you're watching sports. And so, you know, we, we, we have a similar set of battles we have to, we have to <laughs> pick with our partners. Got it. All right. So the playing field is, is we'll just, we'll say that it's leveled for now until yeah. your, until your next book comes out. <laughs> um, so we don't have that much time left, but there are two things that I want to talk about before um, we begin to wrap up. First, I know that the politics of birth control is very important to you. And then because I always like to leave my audience with something actionable, um, what are the best uh, means of contraception that you've found in your research, the safest? Because I mean, it's a question that I get asked all the time from my female friends. um, And I'm sure your insight would be valuable there. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So to get to the first thing, um, you know, the the issue, the political issue, I know that um, for a lot of you know, people, the idea of talking about the birth control pill and and the way that it influences the brain is, um, it's almost seen as sort of antithetical to feminism. Um, and, you know, and it's because the pill has really been amazing for women. And like we talked about at the beginning of the, at the beginning of the show, like, um, you know, I credit my own ability to get an advanced degree to the fact that I was able to safely and effectively regulate my fertility. Um, and you know, so it's a big issue for women and, um, a lot of women owe a lot of success to their ability to do this. And so, um, but this isn't about, um, again, you know, like, like saying that women shouldn't have access to the pill. It's really just about like, know what the trade-offs are that you're making, um, when it comes to the pill. So that way you can best strategize, um, your birth control options, depending on your individual life goals and, um, and circumstances. And so I really think that, you know, the, the, it's, it's like the time to really give this information to women. So that way they're not at the mercy of their doctors to be making decisions about what happens to their brain without their consent. Um, and so, you know, it's just sort of a, that's like a, a sticky issue sometimes for women, as is just the idea that hormones are really influencing what the brain does that can also be sort of a, a sticky um, issue sometimes because of this idea again you know for a very long time women were treated like less rational versions of men um, because their sex hormones are you know changed cyclically and um, and that's just you know not um, at all the case just because everybody's sex hormones change like I was just talking to you and poking fun at men I mean men's primary sex hormone testosterone changes constantly throughout the day and in in actually ways that are really unpredictable, right? Women's sex hormones change in a really predictable way. We can kind of predict what's going to happen with their behavior. And with men, we can predict what's going to happen with their behavior as testosterone vacillates. Um, But the things that cause testosterone to vacillate are much more environmentally mediated than our women's sex hormones. And so 
you know, it's just like this idea that we need to not be afraid to talk about these issues um, and understand that this is actually going to get us to a much better place as women, uh, where we are able to make more informed, thoughtful decisions about our health. So that way we can best optimize um, our how we're going to um, be regulating our fertility um, based on, you know, sort of what our, our goals and circumstances are. To get to the second issue um, about actionable items um, for women, um, I think the very first thing um, that um, just to sort of keep in mind is that um, you know is understanding the way that the birth control pill works and understanding the different types of um, pills that are out there. There's actually um, the pills that are available have different types of these artificial progesterones in them. There's actually four sort of broad categories of these progestins and each one stimulates different receptors in the body. Um, and so they behave a little bit differently. Um, and so one thing that I would say to women who are sort of thinking about what their birth control options are is to educate themselves, um, about, uh, the birth control pill, because it is a really safe and effective, um, means of regulating, um, fertility. And, and for some women at some points in their lives, it's going to make sense because it's, it's the easiest and most effective way. Um, but just to educate themselves, I have this information in my book and like a really nice table and lots of information about the different receptors in the body that get stimulated by the different types of progestins. Um, but like to sort of educate, yourself more about the pill because your doctor is not going to tell you about this stuff. Um, and so really know sort of what you're getting into with the birth control pill and in case, you know, so that way you understand how that option works. Um, but also if, if women are looking for something that's non-hormonal, um, the copper IUD is something that is um, well tolerated by a lot of women. It can cause, um, you know, it causes uh, an inflammatory response, which does other things to the brain that I also like do research on. And so I, I, it's, I say like, you know, women tolerate this well, but it is still going to be influencing what your brain is doing probably, but probably to a somewhat lesser degree um, than hormonal contraceptives do. So copper IUD is a really good option for some women. Um, a lot of women report tolerating it well and not having sort of, you know, as many quote unquote side effects, they feel more like themselves and more at home in their own body with that than they do with, um, with hormonal uh, birth control. There's also, um, of course, you know, there's things like cycle tracking and condom use, um, sort of used together, um, makes it where you're not having to use condoms all the time. Um, but you know, where you're only using them during times in the cycle, um, when, uh, fertility, you know, is high. Um, I will say about this latter form of birth control is that I would not recommend it to anybody for whom getting pregnant would be an absolute disaster. Um, because it's not as fail safe as the IUD or as is the birth control pill. Um, and, you know, which is why, you know, given that our options in terms of things that are really fail safe, like, again, the copper IUD, I think is a really great choice this way. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, really effective, almost completely fail safe birth control, um, the pill, you know, a lot of women, it's, it's still going to be a lot of women's sort of best issue, at least at some, or their best option at some points in their lives. And so it's really about sort of knowing the different areas in your life in which 
um, sort of hormonal contraceptives might influence how you think, feel, and behave. And in the book, I go over, you know, what are these domains of influence? There's things with a stress response and with mood and with other things that women can really like keep track of how they're performing in these areas. And if they don't like how a pill, if they go on the pill, how it's making them feel, they should go and talk to their doctor because there's more than a hundred, you know, it's not, it's close to a hundred different combinations of different hormonal contraceptives that are out there. And I think that if women are strategic about it, and I go over some of the ways that they can strategize this in the book, um, they can find one that makes them feel sort of maximally at home in their own bodies while still protecting them for pregnancy. And so, you know, it's really just about knowing, you know, knowing about the pill and what you're getting into, what are the different types that are out there? What do I need to be looking for in terms of knowing whether or not I'm sort of the version of myself I want to be? And then knowing what your other options are. And again, you know, in terms of non-hormonal things, the copper IUD is a good choice. Fertility tracking with condoms. There's also still the sponge. There's some other things that kind of work that way um, that women can use. And and, and just really sort of knowing what your life goals are, knowing what the trade-offs are, and then making, you know, an informed decision um, that's best for you given your own unique sort of goals and life circumstances. So there is no one best option for a hormonal birth control. It's sort of like an individualized case-by-case scenario. Absolutely. So the way that um, any one woman responds to any one formulation of the birth control pill is going to be incredibly idiosyncratic, um, depending on all kinds of things like her pre-existing levels of hormones, the number of receptors that she has for hormones, different types of genes that she has for regulating other systems in her body. I mean, this is why when women are talking to their best friends, they'll oftentimes find that the thing that worked for their best friend doesn't work for them. Hmm. Um, and and the, the science isn't at a place yet where we can make really strong predictions about who's going to respond what way to what. And so the best thing that women can do is like learn about, for example, the different types of progestins that are in the different types of pills. And so if they find out that they're taking um, a pill that has, for example, what's known as a third generation progestin, and let's say that the woman feels terrible, she can like look and know that there's three other types out there and go to her doctor and say, I'm on something with a third, with a third generation progestin. I want to try something with a second or a fourth generation progestin in it because it's going to stimulate different receptors in your brain and throughout your whole body. Um, and so it's going to cause, it's going to cause a somewhat different experience. And so there's, you know, women can take the information, um, and, you know, strategize their, their use. Cause there's, there's no such thing as a one size fits all um, hormonal contraceptive plan there's or or any type of contraceptive plan it's all really about women educating themselves and and starting conversations with their doctors about ways that they can find things that both protect themselves from pregnancy to the degree that they need to be protected at the time in their life that they're at and then finding something that allows them to still feel at home in their own body that's uh, beautifully, beautifully stated. Is this cycle tracking thing really effective? Because I mean, the reason why I'd be skeptical is that it just seems like magic. But I guess it's, it's, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to take such oh, a God. huge risk um, with something that seems like magic. But it's an it's an effective means of birth control. Here's the, here's what I here's what I'll say about cycle tracking. I think that um, 
it is something that works really well for women for whom it would abs- be not absolutely ca- catastrophic to get pregnant. Um, if you have normal, if you have regular cycles, um, and there's some women who have incredibly regular cycles, like they can predict the moment that they're going to be getting their period every month um, just by counting the days. Um, and for women who fall into that category, um, they can do a pretty good job of, um, you can, we can pinpoint pretty accurately um, what, what her conception risk is on a given day. And um, after the period of conception risk dec- is, is sort of falls, um, then women can have, um, you know, unprotected sex and not have to worry about getting pregnant. The thing is, is that it's not 100% effective, right? So um, even for women who have really normal cycles, really regular cycles, every once in a while, um, women's cycles will throw a wrench in the works. And this is because this is actually really fascinating. And I could do a whole other podcast on it. But women's sex hormones, um, also, like if women are around a lot of really sort of attractive, high quality men, for example, women's will actually like their cycles will actually shorten. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah. It's like fascinating. Right. And so it's like our like sex hormone axis is also sort of responsive to cues in the environment that indicate like now is a really good time. (laughs) Like now is a really good time. It is amazing. It's like bodies are so smart, which, you know, I, it's, I just, I love how smart our bodies are and like this evolutionary process like created us to be so wise and responsive (laughs) to our environments. But so because of this, because women's cycles will sometimes sort of respond to things going on in their environment, whether it's illness or stress or things like being around a lot of really hot guys, (laughs) Um, you know, uh, it's not a hundred percent fail safe. So like if, for example, if it's, if I'm a first year medical school student, you know, and I know that I've got med school and then my, you know, internship and, and all of that ahead of me, I would not use cycle tracking plus condoms, right? I would just use condoms. I would just use a copper IUD or I'd find a birth control pill that I knew, um, or that I knew allowed me to feel maximally at home in my own body for those years, right? Later on, Right. Let's say that I'm out of medical school, but it's like right now wouldn't be a great time to get pregnant. I'm hoping to avoid pregnancy. Um, But if I did, it wouldn't be the end of the world. At that point, you know, I might shift my strategy. Right. Um, Because at that point, it's a little bit of a different set of risks. And it's really just about knowing, you know, what are the risks? Um, you're like, you know, like sort of what are the costs and benefits of, of different types of, you know, using different types of birth control strategies. Um, and that's going to differ, you know, from woman to woman, but it's going to differ, you know, within each individual woman, depending on what she's doing at that moment as well. And like what, you know, what's going on in her life. Cause there are some points in our lives where, you know, getting pregnant would be absolutely catastrophic. And I would make very different recommendations about a birth control, birth control strategy for that woman than I would for some somebody who's like, I really don't want to get pregnant. But you know, if I did, it's not going to be the absolute worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, I would probably recommend different courses and also just based on development. And and like one thing that we didn't um, really talk about, but I think is worth mentioning is that, you know, the birth control pill, because it's changing um, the profile of sex hormones um, in, you know, a woman's body. Um, normally, the way that sex hormones work when you're a grown up um, is that they sort of exercise their influence and now you see it, now you don't kind of a fashion. Like when the hormone is there, it does something. And then when it's out of your system, the things that it did before, you know, go away. Um, but when you're still developing and your brain is being put together, 
um, then sex hormones can actually have um, a permanent impact on the layout of the brain. And we know that the, you know, brain isn't done developing until people are in their, you know, early 20s. Um, So up until, you know, about the time a woman is like 19 or 20, um, there's an there's a chance that the sex hormones that she's taking with the birth control pill might be actually sort of influencing the way that her brain is put together, right? And in a way that's not not reversible. And and there's not a lot of research. And when I say there's not a lot of research, I mean, there's almost no research on the impact of taking the birth control pill um, prior to the end of brain development. And so we don't yet know whether going on the pill during, you know, when women are in their teen years, um, like whether or not that has a, a lasting impact on, on brain development. And so this is like another piece of the puzzle, right? It's like, it might make sense if you have sort of a risky teenager who's having a lot of sex um, to put them on the pill anyway, right? Because again, the benefits of, of avoiding an unwanted pregnancy are very high at that point in a woman's life. But, you know, just to sort of make her periods less uncomfortable, like, you know, if we don't know what it's doing to brain development, do we want to make that trade off? I don't, I don't know. And again, that's not my decision to make. It's, it's for each individual woman and, 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 you know, her mother and and her doctor, these are conversations that they need to be having, but they need to be having this, you know, they need to be having this information to actually have these conversations. So that way they can take all of the facts that they need um, into consideration when making choices about hormonal birth control. That is so important. And yeah, it just underscores how complicated the issue is. If you're a teenager and you're having lots of risky sex, then the, then the benefits of taking the pill to prevent pregnancy probably mm-hmm. outweigh the risks because having an unwanted pregnancy in, t- in your teenage years would be catastrophic. But if yes. you're just doing it essentially to reg- help, reg- you know, quote unquote, regulate your period, mm-hmm. probably not the best idea. And what you know, my brain automatically went to once you began talking about um, <clears throat> the risks that could be incurred during development was the the fact that our environment is now saturated with these xenoestrogens, which, you know, could mm-hmm. fill a whole other um, episode of the of the podcast. But, you know, these compounds in the environment, plasticizing compounds that essentially mimic estrogen in the body mm-hmm. during that time in one's life or even in utero. Yeah, no, I know exactly. I mean, it's like people forget that I, it's like our sex hormones, it's like they, they get treated like in this like really sort of, sort of, you know, sort of relaxed cavalier way. But I mean, these guys are the head contractors in so many remodeling projects in our body during development. Um, and to have, yeah, these endocrine disrupting compounds, um, so pervasive, um, you know, in everything from our, you know, our food to the things that we store our food in to soaps and shampoos and all of this. It's like, um, when we think about what the hormones do organizationally and in terms of the day-to-day execution of the brain, it's like, we could be actually changing the behavior, right. Of generations of people just through the use of plastic. And that's really, really, you know, fascinating and scary. Yeah, super scary. I've done a podcast in the past on the topic, but mm-hmm. I would love to have you back to talk um, more about that because this seems to be an area where you've really done a deep dive. But needless to say, um, yeah, plastic and all these like, you know, BPA, BPS, phthalates, mm-hmm. flame retardants. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not doing good things for us. No, no. And that and like, um, you know, when you couple that with the, you know, we have now also like these pro-inflammatory lifestyles. And so my other 
big area of research right now is the way that inflammation influences the brain and, and the way that it can make us more short-sighted and, and decrease our ability to plan and some of these other things. And we think about, you know, the types of foods that we have around that are pro-inflammatory and our lifestyle is pro-inflammatory and that we're also sort of changing, you know, we're changing um, people's behavior by the foods and everything sort of indirectly through the activities of, you know, inflammatory cytokines is like, um, we live in a weird, you know, this is like evolutionarily, you know, the wild west, um, in terms of like our brain is like, we are not in an environment like that we are optimized for and the way that our behavior is sort of responding to the environments and the pill is part of this context, right. Where we're doing all of these things where we're sort of like changing, you know, um, yeah, we're sort of changing the course of, of civilization, um, through these, through these like sort of, you know, small changes that we make in, yeah, exposures. Yeah, man, I've got to get you a copy of my book, Genius Foods, which is all about the latter, you know, topic mm -hmm. of inflammation, food, and our lifestyles and how it affects brain function. I, I wonder yes. if I've cited some of your research in, in there. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, one last quick question before we get, uh, before we wrap up, but you mentioned that women's, um, you know, estrogen levels could be affected by her proximity to hot guys can yes. is is there any truth to the to the notion that our testosterone increases in the presence of attractive uh, ladies yeah so um and actually here's a, like and here's a nice tie back to the book too so yeah when men are around attractive women testosterone increases um and men's testosterone also increases when they're around women um who are ovulating and wow. so when yeah and it's actually the scent of um, ovulating women that causes men's um, testosterone to boost. And, um, you know, so one thing that happens to women on the birth control pill, of course, is they don't ovulate and they don't get this big surge in estrogen that precedes ovulation um, that sort of is associated with all of these things that make women sort of maximally desirable to men. Um, so when women go on the pill, they're also sort of minimizing um, the degree to which their partner is going to be exhibiting this like really powerful sort of um, desire response um, to them and their sort of mating effort toward them. So women are kind of missing out on a sort of, fr you know, free, organic, free trade, <laughs> you know, um, locally sourced um, sexiness boost um, that they get mid-cycle um, when they're naturally cycling um, once they're on the birth control pill. Tell you what, it's no wonder dating is so hard in Los Angeles. You've got yeah. like all all these attractive guys and girls in this in this milieu. It's like a hormonal cacophony, and like, yeah. oh my god, yeah, you don't even know where to you don't even know where to go. It's just like it's like wow, my sex hormones are like really telling me something, but I don't even know where to direct my energy. Yeah, you There's end so up much going on. You just end up paralyzed with fear, and you don't, you know. Yeah, you end up in the corner with a potted plant. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. And a cat. <laughs> Story of my life. I have a cat, and uh, and I, I spend more time with her than I spend on the dating scene. Um, okay, which, well, no, it's probably for good reason. It so, is. Yeah, she's, yeah. yeah, she's great. She's adorable. Um, Amazing. Shout out to Delilah, the cat. Um, well, Dr. Hill, this was like so informative and amazing. I've got just one last question for you that gets asked to everybody who's on this show. But before we get to yes. that, how can listeners um, connect with you? You've got this amazing book. Um, this is your yes. brain on birth control. I highly recommend mm -hmm. um, checking it out. Uh, what else? How else can, can listeners, you know, uh, make the connection? 
Yeah, you. yeah. So the so the book is um is is great and um and I'm also um you can find me on the interwebs. I'm at um Sarah with an H, so that's www.sarahehill.com. And I am on all the social media platforms and you can find me. My handle across platforms is at Sarah E. Hill PhD. Amazing. Uh, Dr. Hill, okay, so this is the final question. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? Take it wherever you like. What it means to live a genius life is sort of being aware of um, sort of the evolutionary processes that designed us and the types of environments that we're optimized for. Um, Sort of recognizing how our current environment differs from the environments we're optimized for and trying to bridge the gap to try to maximize um, happiness, well-being and our connectedness with other people. That's the genius life. That's beautiful. And that would be that would mirror pretty closely my own definition of the genius life. So thank you for that. Yeah. This has been a pleasure to all you guys out there in podcast land. Thank you so much for your time and attention. As always, I value you so much. Take a moment to spread this episode of the podcast tag dr hill tag myself and i will catch you on the next episode peace